Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Market Pulse edition of The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and joining us today on The Scoop is our guest, Loomdart, a founding member of the anonymous crypto investment group, eGirl Capital, as well as Larry Cermak, VP of Research at The Block. Before we dive into today's program, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Huobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset management services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Huobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and your assets. Learn more today at Huobi.com. This episode is also brought to you by Ledin. From Bitcoin and USDC savings accounts to Bitcoin-backed loans, Ledin's financial services enable you to benefit from your holdings today without selling your Bitcoin. Learn more about Ledin at Ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, we have Larry Cermak and Loomdark coming on the show. I think their first time together, although they've both been on quite a bit. Loomdart had his historic appearance at the end of last year before the, or uh, when was it? I forget actually. That was, but, I'd say we're talking market Pico top, like, like was, Pico Pico top. I just can't believe it's December already. That's why I'm a bit shaken by, by that fact. So now we're uh, not in Pico top. The market's been gripped by this, not only the bear market, but the calamity that is the fallout of FTX. We had Sam on just a few days ago. That was quite the endeavor. Um, maybe we can reflect on the interview real quick with Larry. Uh, Loom hasn't had a chance to listen to it. Um, what do you think the biggest like takeaway was? Yeah, I think, I mean, he, he's basically still kind of repeating the same story as we've heard uh, across different podcasts. But in, in the one that you did, I think he went a little bit more into detail. And you were, I think, one of the few people that actually pressed him on the tougher questions. I think we got a little bit more clarity about what he was saying about the margin. We also got a little bit more clarity about the stub accounts, as he calls them, for fiat uh, as they commingle with Alameda. Um, and we got a little bit more, I think, insight into kind of how Sam is thinking about stuff yeah. these days. And also, obviously, the, the jurisdiction battle that, that might come uh, when it comes to the bankruptcy case. I think overall, it was, it was the most comprehensive uh, interview that was there and, and definitely recommend people you know, go check it out. It's long, but it's, it's good. I've been getting outpouring of, of support, but also tips, which has been interesting. I've talked with a few sources who kind of uh, walked me through some of the more egregious lies or misrepresentations uh, during the course of the show. So I think there's a good follow-up piece to be had there. I mean, there's a lot of different things we can talk about. You mentioned uh, the bankruptcy element of it and how it will shake out from a jurisdiction perspective. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but 
as a creditor and someone living abroad, is this the most important thing for, for you guys? I know that you both had some funds on FTX. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. What's keeping you uh, sane in these in these trying times? I mean, the kind of one big thing I've realized is that, like, no matter how badly I have been hit by this, I'm like, I mean, I'm still here. I still have enough money for food and water for a good few years. Like, in terms of full-on damage, but, I mean, I'm getting my health back as I've gained quite a few pounds the last few years, but having to cut down on food because Sam took all my money is helping. But just, like, it... I don't want to say it could always be worse because I don't think that's like a good way to just think about life in general but in terms of like how bad it really could have been I think I personally am like fine I, I have a lot of friends who are in kind of positions where they are ruined in terms of stuff they owe to other people that through no fault of their own is like they're screwed now and like businesses are failing not because of kind of any greed where it's like hey they put their money into luna to like get some free money but like just you know having funds on exchange like cost them everything which is like kind of horrendous yeah, one one question I have for you, Loom, and I've been kind of like going back and forth about this myself. Um, like, what was your mentality for actually not withdrawing the money? Because I think both of us knew that, like, you know, it's the logical thing to do, uh, despite the chance, at least back then, from my perspective, being very low, that something like this could happen. You know, I, I ended up basically, you know, not withdrawing, basically because I was lazy. I was probably too cocky. But but how how is someone like you thinking about that when you have a huge amount of your net worth on on FTX and and how are you thinking about it now? Yeah, it's honestly a tough question to answer because in hindsight, any reasoning that I would have is just like ludicrous and just makes me seem like feel incredibly stupid. But I think my main mistake was I really didn't look deep enough into kind of understanding the Coindesk article. And and those weeks were like incredibly busy for me in terms of things I kind of had to do. So I only really started paying attention to this when a few friends were like, hey, Loom, it's like time to start withdrawing. And that was unfortunately when they had started the withdrawal caps. And it was just frankly too late at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh... Yeah, I, I was in a similar boat. I mean, the Kundesk article seemed like relatively incomplete at, at the time, at least uh, to me. And then when I started taking it really seriously was when the CZ back and forth started. Uh, uh, but yeah, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> didn't go well for, for either one of us. What was the <clears> moment? Um, like, it's nice to reflect just because it's fun, but also I think interesting as well. When was the moment when we all realized that it was just, okay, this firm has a lot of issues, a lot of issues with its balance sheet to, okay, this could be criminal or illegal behavior. What was that first sort of indication? So for me, when I really knew I was in trouble was when was when Binance announced the, the acquisition or when, when they tweeted out that announcement, like, because, you know, knowing a little bit about kind of how Sam Randy changed and, and his mentality you know, he would never, ever do that unless there was something terribly wrong, unless they, they, they owed, owed a lot of money. And so that's when I realized I'm probably never going to see that money again. Or if, if I'm going to see some of it, it's going to be very little. And it's going to take like five years. 
and 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 then like it, it seems like ever since that announcement every day it started getting a bit worse like every day mm-hmm. was a bit worse you find out that you know it's it's not actually 2 billion like i initially thought but then it mm-hmm. ends up being 4 billion then it was 6 billion it was 8 billion and and you keep hearing these things right like from like private groups from chats from people on twitter you keep hearing you know oh sam actually bought stocks like oh mm-hmm. you know it was it was a huge load to alameda and then for a few days you didn't really know what to believe because it was just at least to me it was so unbelievable that this would happen that almost like you have to get used to the fact that this actually did happen and and what <clears throat> what the implications will be but i think like probably two three days after the announcement it started becoming quite obvious that there was something terribly terribly wrong what really annoyed me the most honestly is, is that like a lot of the employees at FTX or, you know, a lot of my friends who work there um, work with Sam day to day and then they had no idea about this. And, and you know, those were some people that I, I relied on with, with some information as well. Like I would assume that if there was something wrong, you know, at least those people would know, but it turns out they just didn't. And then when I realized that, that then, you know, it was kind of just getting used to the fact that I'm never going to see that money again. Well, what, what? Okay, but what about the cope? We just got some fresh cope off the presses, and by presses, I mean from Wazi Lawyer. Oh, bless him! He's keeping us going. Um, I guess you're referring to the kind of effective jurisdictional battle stuff going on between, like, the U.S. and the Bahamas. It's an yeah. interesting point to where, obviously, if the Bahamas can kind of wrestle the bankruptcy out of the u.s courts it does get a lot friendlier in terms of the overall jurisdiction dealing with this is one that i mean like people seem to forget that like yeah obviously sam was very beneficial to the bahamas in terms of like his many many investments and developments there but also like they took him in this is incredibly embarrassing for them as a jurisdiction i mean when the uh Oh, God, I don't think he was the attorney general, but do you remember like a Bahamian lawyer had like a press release and the entire thing was just him continuously going like we were here. We like we stopped their stuff first. We like like in terms Mm -hmm. of face, this is horrendous for the Bahamas. So they have a very, very big reason to like try and make this right somehow whereas for the us this is much more of kind of okay this is like crypto fraudsters gone wrong there's like they kind of view like i i don't want to say they view the creditors uh, basically people who lost money in ftx as like people who like lost money taking part in a ponzi but i just feel like overall a us kind of battle for this like a bankruptcy would be much more like all right we need to like kind of punish these people and like you know these kids misbehaved and took part in something that was silly rather than like we need to kind of make this right by them and see how like best we can go through this but why is it better for um users like why would it be better for you two i guess the actually larry do you want to take this one yeah, I mean, I, I can kind of say, and, and, and keep in mind, this is this is very much some serious cope. Like, like the oh, yeah, probability this is pure, of this. <laughs> pure speculation. This is this is like when you have a lot of money on FTX, and like honestly, I mean, look, guys, if you 
Uh, the unfortunate truth is if you did have a large amount of capital on FTX, mentally it's just best to write it off as zero. Any bonus, any money coming in, unfortunately, like just for your own sake, just assume that like that money isn't going to be coming in. And if there is, even if there is some plan or whatever, it's going to take a very long time. I think just for like everyone's yeah. kind of mental health. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, effectively, I think both Flume and I are treating the, the amount that we had there as zero, and then and it will take years. But I think kind of to summarize some of the reasoning why it could be better in this like super hypothetical cope scenario um, is that, first of all, Bahamas is, you know, it's it's a small, relatively small jurisdiction where um, in terms of like bureaucracy and in terms of how, how long things will take, uh, I, I would bet that it would be it would be a little bit faster um, then dealing with with the U.S. liquidators, so the liquidation liquidation process. Um, also, it's very apparent that Sam has, you know, control over how that process is going. Like I think from the last like two three weeks, it's become very clear that Sam still has connections in the Bahamas, and and the government is still standing by him. And I think it goes back to the argument that Loom was making. I mean, he just made them look terrible. So. They kind of have to go in this direction. Uh, and then, you know, if this process goes a little bit faster, there is a chance that someone else, you know, he, he, for example, I don't know if it's Sam or someone else, but someone can buy the assets and buy the brand, buy the exchange, and then somehow, you know, for example, offer people to to be bought out for, for the amount that, that they would be owed at that time based on how many assets they have. So let's say it would be, you know, 10 cents on the dollar or something immediately, but then you, you can get something like like some debt token or something and, and the exchange could be restarted. Like something similar as we saw with, with Bitfinex back in the day when they were hacked for a lot of lot of money, you know, that's a path that could potentially be taken. But But yeah, I mean, this will, you know, this will be a long battle, and and I, I am pretty sure that the Bahamas will try to uh, challenge the jurisdictions of the U.S., especially for FTX International, because it's hard to make the argument that this kind of belongs to the, you know, U.S. Uh, bankruptcy case because there were no U.S. customers and it was a purely non-U.S. exchange, and I think, you know, it, I think it will end up being separated, and then it it will depend if if this. Uh, battle from the Bahamas can be won. And then if there are any investors still with appetite to actually buy out some of these assets or even the exchange altogether. But but like I said, the probability of this is incredibly low. I just think that like the, the prospect of you know the other side, which is the US liquidators and the US bankruptcy case, they have no they have no desire whatsoever to revive the exchange. They have no de- desire whatsoever to do this as fast as possible, in my opinion. It will take years and it will drag on for a really long time. That's at least kind of how I'm thinking about it. Uh, I would much rather have the option to, you know, take out the money now versus wait five years and, and get slightly more uh, because the cost of capital, at least for me, like in this case, it's it's much better to get it now versus, versus you know, a lot later. Um, I don't know if Loom agrees with this, you know. I mean, I think just the option is like something that's fundamentally very valuable. But again, like there's like, guys, this is tremendous hyper gigacope. Like this is like sub 0.1% or whatever. Because I mean, a lot of this fringes on the fact that like there would be a buyer of these like the liquidated assets, which obviously is not. I I mean, uh, like the issue with kind of sam's position is that obviously he still has the very very relevant fact that like he's probably still kind of anything he does says can look like an admission of guilt 
And so, like, he can say things, but he also has to be wary of the fact that if he says the wrong things, it doesn't look good for him. So it's kind of similar with the Sue and Kyle stuff where, like, you just can't admit you're wrong. You you can kind of keep pushing it out where you just pretend like you're trying to do what's best for as long as possible and just kind of hope it works because there is not really another like option. There's no kind of apologizing to people, admitting you fucked up. Sorry, pardon my language. Because then that's just jail. Or, I guess, not jail. On seeing on how things are turning out. Yeah, I think... Uh... Yeah, the, the Giga Cup is basically like exactly what Sam mentioned on the podcast is that he, I think the chance of him not being criminally charged and not seeing jail is very low unless he somehow like, you know, makes this right. And and, and, and the chance of him making it right is so low. But I think he, he effectively has to try or at least fake that he's trying um, because that's the only way how he can show like some intent of actually fixing this. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the chances are that he goes to jail. I think maybe it's like 50-50. Pick a safe answer. Um, yeah. I mean, you could see you could see some of the pressure building up yesterday already, right, with the tweets. Like, they, they did kind of change the tone a bit, which was like, hey, you should actually come here. Like, it's quite important. I mean, it's it maybe it is just because, uh, you know, they were really soft with him before. And it's also hilarious. Pretty, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're referring to Maxine Waters, where she yeah. tweeted him. Thanks, you know, for talking to everybody and being so, you know, vocal and open. Can you please testify on the 13th? And then he's like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and she's like, get the fuck over here. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's imperative you're here. I mean, I, the tone also kind of changed when Caroline was spotted in Manhattan, which is yeah. like, well, I mean... <sighs> there's many places where once this type of thing occurs, you go. And the US is probably not in the first 192 <laughs> countries. It's probably the 193rd one. So I imagine there's like some heat coming from that. Yeah. I think also if, if the listeners want to be entertained, you should look at the hidden tweets under under this tweet that we're talking about. It's it's literally hilarious. It's every single tweet that's claiming that she she was bribed or that there was some uh wrongdoing from her side is, is has been hidden by uh by her. So it's really funny. Oh really? Yeah. That's funny. I didn't even know you could do that. <laughs> um where do we where do we go from here, Lumdar? Um if you think about what's happened in the market, all these players have been blown out. Um, it's it's different from 2017, 2018, where all the like stupid ICO projects that no one cared about disappeared. But in this market, we saw Cel- – I mean, Celsius was always a little bit weird, but Celsius has gone bankrupt. BlockFi is bankrupt. I mean, they were a $5 billion company or at least trying to raise at that valuation at one point. FTX is gone. FTX US is gone. Alameda is gone. Um, Genesis Capital is sort of in an uncertain position. There's just a gaping hole now. Um, where do we where do we go from here? Well, I mean, it's kind of like it took people a very long time to understand how to self custody. There was a lot of trial and error. There was a lot of like hardware wallets coming in failing, and I think there's a parallel to like effectively understanding kind of the 
hard i guess not hardware crypto ethos but the like kind of what what crypto brings to the table in terms of transparency in terms in terms of being able to custody your own coins and i mean this was the first time where bitcoin and crypto was kind of like well on this major stage i mean 2017 2018 was like relatively large but that was still fairly speculative this time we kind of had this ideal of like celsius's core crypto infrastructure blockfire's core crypto infrastructure and that was just like i mean not true and so i think what we've had is just a very 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 heavy meltdown but I mean, this is like the age old story of Bitcoin, where every time it goes up and then down, the overall IQ of the holders increases by a small margin because the people who potentially shouldn't be owning Bitcoin learn their lessons and lose their Bitcoin. And the people who like kind of, well, I guess in this case, are like the winners, the guys who self custodied, the guys who like use DeFi because they could trust most of these protocols because it's all on the chain. And so, I mean, obviously, I got very heavily burnt in this too, but this is just like it's kind of a trial by fire and i honestly view it as being somewhat necessary because crypto is such an open and free ecosystem so where if we don't have this type of i guess education by fire it just keeps getting worse like for example if ftx didn't blow up now and they managed to like keep going i, yeah. I don't think that hole was going to shrink and so even though it really really does suck a lot of people are learning lessons i mean crypto isn't going to go away like people talk about how like bitcoin is narrativeless which is like very confusing to me because i mean currencies are more volatile more crazy than like ever and it's not like uh bitcoin went down it's suddenly not doing its job it's like no it's meant to be something that kind of offers itself as like an alternative and Sometimes it just doesn't have to go to zero to be like, all right, Bitcoin is still a thing. It still has value. It still has a thesis and narrative. And so that's kind of like, I mean, a big piece of this as well is a lot of people have lost everything. And usually when you lose everything, it's kind of like, like you don't want this ecosystem to exist anymore because then it's a case of like, well, I, I believed in it. I lost everything and it's still going up. This is like unfair. This is cruel. This is evil. But I mean, crypto is crypto. Like it's super, super messed up. But unfortunately, like, yes, yeah, some people lost all of their money, but like the market's still going to keep growing. It seems like yeah. I, I'm interested to see how like because a lot of these vcs with high kind of cash sums but like there's not really that much to invest in nowadays and it's not like they can yeah. sit on the money well i mean i guess some can but like somehow we, larry willing, we should like, le we should leave the block and start a prime broker <laughs> well I, i've um, been approached that, a couple of times to just start a fund now because it, it's a good time to start funds, right? If, like if, if you if you are bullish on crypto, if you don't think that crypto will die, it's probably the best time ever to like just raise money and invest and, and be kind I mean, of LP right wise, now. like who's looking to LP? Yeah, that's, that's, a, Loom, that's a good question. But to Loom's point, Larry, what would you invest in? What are the opportunities right now? It seems like well, I think the I think the opportunities have to be like you have you have some long term thesis, whether that's you know Ethereum or whether that's Bitcoin, and you just stick to it. Like you basically pull out the paradigm trade, right? Like mm -hmm. when when they were buying at like four or five k last cycle, 
um, effectively kind of creating the bottom and then just waiting for two years and seeing massive benefits. Like here, it could take longer, obviously. Like, I don't know about the timeline, but I think it's very likely that like we'll, we'll see new all-time highs, you know, in the next 10 years. And like, as long as you're just committed to that and as, as, as long as you stick to that, uh, I think you can see pretty decent returns just sticking to some of the major investments. You know, I definitely wouldn't advocate like punting some shit coins these days or, or doing a lot of like kind of unclear venture investments. But but some liquid liquid vehicles could be interesting right now. I mean, honestly, uh, but, that's but... a really interesting point because last cycle, what do we have? We had companies putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Bitcoin miners, into stuff like Celsius, stuff like BlockFi. That in their eyes was core crypto infrastructure, which is like not true. And so suddenly, even though there's potentially a lot less kind of um, investing capital there's also the case where they've kind of wisened up a bit they're no longer going to be like just basically pumping money into things that are uh, i don't want to say the word vaporware but everyone's just going to be a lot more constrained we probably won't have layer twos being as like kind of this revolutionary thing as they were initially seen as and so it just feels like everyone's a bit more I guess, for lack of a better word, sensible. And unfortunately, it took like a gigantic market collapse for people to realize that, okay, we need to be a bit more sensible. But I mean, that's never like a bad thing because at the end of the day, there are legitimate companies around that are slowly accruing value, accruing users. Obviously, there's a lot, lot less of them, but like that's still a thing. And now it's less of an issue where they kind of... Because I mean, honestly, the way I view this is a lot of these lenders were forced to lend crazy like basically taking billions uncollateralized because the other lenders were raising hundreds of millions of dollars and it's like well we we have an obligation to our company to our shareholders like we yeah. want to raise hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars too yeah yeah and we have to offer the same competitive rates the same schemes as our competitors or we're going to be run out of business part of part of the downfall was the fact that there were just so many with with pockets deep pockets of money to sort of um, support and prop up this this froth, but okay. So that raises two interesting questions um, for Larry. Does that is is this more of a uh, well? There's so many questions, but is this a VC problem? Is it that the VCs were at fault, or was it the capital markets? These capital market participants were were at fault, were amateurs, probably a mix of the both. And then the second question is, what does this mean for crypto, CFI? Is it dead? Do you think people will be more focused on building DeFi lending and trading rails? So kind of how would you delineate who's at fault? And then what does it mean in terms of like DeFi adoption? Yeah, those are really good questions. Um, I mean, who's at fault? It's really hard to say, right? Like, If you are a fund, if you are like, I don't know, Parify or whoever else, if you're a fund that has the obligations to deploy and basically for two and a half years straight, everything that you invest in immediately gets marked up 10x. Um, and, and effectively, you know, a lot of these investments were, were basically printing money. Uh, you, would, you would be almost, you know, an idiot not to take a take. Um, like to take these opportunities and, and invest in, in in those, but I think a lot of them knew that this was you know something that is not going to be sustainable. Like effectively, what what ended up happening is that there was so much money willing to fund these projects, but very little money 
uh, willing to buy on the secondary market when these when these when these things actually hit, right? And then so on the secondary market, effectively you, you only have the retail investors and and potentially some like narrative traders. Uh, whereas generally the the pre sales, uh, the seed rounds and the angel rounds, it was it was just the VCs plus some angel investors. And you know if you are an angel investor or VC in that environment, you, you generally will take it uh, regardless if it's if it's shit or not. Uh, because it, it gives you really good value. Uh, so I think to some extent, yeah, it is it is a problem with just like how everything was set up. And it is a problem also how all these tokens end up trading way before you really have any sort of traction on the market. Like no one's actually trading the, you know, the value of these tokens or, or kind of the long-term value. Mostly people are trading the narratives. Uh, they're trade they're tr- They're trading all these things that are kind of difficult to measure. A lot of it is just sentiment. And therefore, you know, it kind of always forces you into this loop of like, you know, there's Chainlink um, really hyped up for one year. And then we haven't heard about it for the last two years. And then and it keeps going these cycles where you have a new coin or, you know, new small communities of people that are super passionate about something. And then when you exhaust it, you jump you jump to another thing. Um, and, and this kind of vicious cycle almost, you know, is encouraged in crypto and it it. it it's it's almost you know gambling versus versus trading. Uh, so I think I think you know both are at fault, but I think the biggest problem is that a lot of these things trade like way before there's anything real, and also the founders, the investors, they get rewarded by just investing in interesting ideas, but not in in actually something that could work out. Right. That that in my opinion is the biggest problem. Wobi, one of the world's leading virtual asset exchanges, has been providing convenient and professional virtual asset services to more than 50 million users in more than 160 countries for nearly a decade. At Wobi, their mission is to make crypto accessible, building the go-to hub for the next billion crypto users. Wobi believes crypto shouldn't have any barriers to entry. Wobi is committed to asset and platform security to help you understand risks and make informed decisions to protect you and and your assets. Learn more today at Wobi.com. I also want to give a shout out to Ledin. Ledin, Bitcoin back loans and savings by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. As we've seen, not all digital asset lenders are created equal. Ledin prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with its robust risk management approach. That is why Ledin doesn't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation strategies with its clients' assets and only supports Bitcoin and USDC two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. Ledin is also dedicated to transparency, which is why they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation. Learn more about Ledin at ledin.io. Ledin, where your digital assets come to life. I mean, I think something that, like, honestly, I kind of regret not thinking about more in depth because it kind of was the precursor to all of this was effectively the late 2020 uh, grayscale trade which was put bitcoin into gbtc you can immediately mark it up 25 percent in your books because gbtc was at a crazy premium and then you use the fact that you like generated this incredible return to raise like a bunch more money and i think that kind of like in hindsight it's pretty clear now that that is what effectively kickstarted this idea of like 
effectively you weren't investing to capitalize on the return you were investing to get that paper return so you could just raise more money which was yeah i mean that's kind of what started this entire cycle of just clownery is this is this the most evil product in financial markets ever to be created i mean i'm sure there's some worse but like in terms of absolute destruction of retail managing to get a lot of traders who like like a lot of these gbtc guys who got really burnt on it were like ogs like sue and kyle had been around for a while blockfi had like been around for a while i mean obviously they should have known better like grayscale to them was like a free money printing machine like it's just fundamentally something that like can't sustain which is something i highlighted back in like early 2021 and like that that was a fairly good call but obviously we should have kept it going and been like wait maybe the damage isn't done but it's actually something i kind of do want to briefly mention is something i saw with luna is when luna first launched a lot of the guys who ended up getting burnt by it were like this thing is very clearly unsustainable it's not gonna work and they like were very adamant against it for a very very long time till it started like hypermooning and then it came a piece of like well snap maybe i was wrong maybe this thing is legit and it's like honestly i've noticed this time and time again when that starts to happen when these like core core og guys are like wait snap maybe i was wrong about this that's usually when the like quote-unquote top is in and when the chaos begins like you, you you can't sit and tell me sue in his incredibly cynical state would ever think that like luna was a good idea mm. uh but hey at uh, least the Larry. nft guys were right yeah, Everyone the NFT guys them. are still having they're having a blast still. They still have the VC money coming in. They're poor. I mean, but like I did a obviously a pretty, pretty heavy pivot to NFTs like last year. Unfortunately, it didn't save me from getting nuked by FTX. But like, I mean, it was kind of apparent that like DeFi had gotten rather dirty. We were like, I mean, like in concept, like Luna was just a hyper Ponzi. And like the NFT guys were getting like shat on. For like, oh, you guys are stupid. You're playing with like, you know, toys, JPEGs. And I feel that like, I mean, if you look at art blocks, they've been doing like very well recently. It's just a much more honest, pure crypto product. But yeah. They're just, they're just sweet. They're it's, sweet you, you're not like. They're a little, a little dumb, but they're sweet. I mean, I've always had this gripe where like crypto exchanges are like kind of quote unquote looking to like democratize finance except it's just margin gambling that makes you think you're like some smart derivatives trader when you're just on like a suited up gambling casino and like people are kind of tricked into thinking they're like smart for like effectively just gambling and i think nfts are like something that's honest and just it's not like people lying to themselves that like they're professionals. pure larry so going back to the second part of the question from before c5 what is this whole market meltdown mean for the future of centralized lending and trading yeah so i think first point that like really scares me is that clearly the collapse of ftx will have implications on the regulatory environment like i think everyone believes that at this point um you know we've had all the funds that deployed a lot of capital all the retail investors that got wrecked everyone is asking the same question and that's like you know if we did so many months of due diligence 
how do we not find anything wrong? And I think this will be addressed by regulators. Like they, they will just use this as an opportunity to, you know, create some sort of guidelines, even for international exchanges. Uh, so that could be quite limiting for sure um, for the future growth. That being said, you know, we're talking about like, what are some other alternatives, right? Like, so DeFi was mentioned briefly. We have some like decentralized off on ramps and off ramps, like, like just meeting up with people in person. None of these are really good enough, uh, right? Like um, you're still going to need to put money in. You're still going to need to take money out. That still requires banking. That will always require CFI and, and centralized exchanges, uh, when it comes to DeFi, if you look at effectively all products that exist today, yeah, you know some of them are you know you you you're still custodying your own coins. You you have some slightly better guarantees of you know risks, but at the same time, a lot of them are not user friendly. Like like the reason why a lot of people were on FTX was because they wanted to get the you know better futures experience that than what you would get from something like DYDX. They wanted to be able to off ramp really quickly and and without any any hassle. And I don't think we're anywhere close to these DeFi products being at the level where you cannot tell that you're using FTX, you're using DYDX, or you know, you're using mm. Binance versus Uniswap. Like I, I still think that will that that's years and years away, unfortunately. Uh, and, and it also turns out that most customers, especially retail customers, like a lot of traders on Binance, they actually don't want to custody their own coins. Like they're fundamentally against it because the because they just don't want to have their own hardware wallet somewhere. They don't they don't want to have the responsibility. They want to have the similar experience as with a you know broker dealer or uh or a bank or something. Uh so so I'm not particularly you know bullish on the fact that DeFi will all of a sudden like come back and and then the experiences expenses are going to be so good that it replaces centralized exchanges i think we're probably you know several years away from anything getting close to the level that you're used to with centralized exchanges um so Luma, as someone who's participated in multiple crypto cycles um how do you think a prolonged bear market will affect the community I mean, in terms of effect to the community, obviously, I mean, we've had a lot of people leave. We've had kind of stuff get a bit more grim. But, like, projects, some projects that are quote-unquote legitimate have, like, ample funding. They're still going to be doing what they're doing. I think what the next like kind of quote unquote narrative we will see will be something that not everyone is like ba basically it will be something that comes by surprise it won't be that pre-anticipated but that like is what it is that's the story of crypto we like never kind of expect the next big thing whatever it is but i think it's just kind of um it will just be like the same old culprits right it's like the same old people on crypto twitter the people who are just like crypto because it's crypto like something i always like to talk about is this idea of like so once someone's made it in crypto obviously they like you know they cash out into cash and stuff but like these guys are crypto natives like the bitcoin maxis like they don't really spend much money on stuff to them it's just i mean it's the core fundamental ethos of like you always want your total amount of bitcoin to go up if that's like 
the total kind of cumulative amount. So it's, if that's like the amount of Bitcoin you would own if you convert all your USD to Bitcoin, but just making as much money as possible to own as much Bitcoin as possible is kind of a core ethos, I think, that underlies a lot of the quote unquote big money guys and i think it's something that like it's kind of what i referenced before where over time like these guys just slowly get more and more crypto was like everyone else kind of loses theirs gets liquidated and so i think that like the music will never truly ever end but we can have these like long periods of just kind of quietness but i mean that's when the fun stuff kind of gets created and thought of when we have the like guys who are uh, i love the term now i used to hate the term but now i love the term the guys who are in it for the tech kind of get to experiment grow things and they don't have this pressure of doing stuff for the sole goal of like ponzifying it and like making money instantly so you can raise a higher valuation everything's a lot more sensible and like people are just a lot more rational so i mean it's like the age-old thing of like hard times create hard people hard people create good times good times create soft people soft people create hard times it's just you know it's a never-ending cycle but i mean in terms of like core crypto participants like there are ways for them to stay around be happy i think honestly nfts again i mean i referenced it before but i think Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just there's a few more people who fundamentally always hated them starting to like take part in the ecosystems a bit more. And I think just in terms of like growing the overall appeal of crypto to people, it's like something that helps. In terms of like gosh, it's tough because obviously when you have a startup that is no longer viable, what you do is you close shop, right? You either return money to investors, but this is something that's like not common in crypto at all because it's like, well, this ERC-20 is not going to stop trading. This project is like still alive. And it was not an issue back in like 2014, 2015 because these weren't tokens on Ethereum. They were like their own blockchains and your own blockchain needs miners it needs like the blockchain to keep processing blocks otherwise it's mm-hmm. really dead but like a lot of erc20s a lot of polka dot projects a lot of bsc projects like they can kind of go in this like zombie state for a very long time and i think that's part of a big chunk of like the 2021 froth was dead 2017 zombie projects that never fully died that people started buying because it had a similar narrative to something that pumped and so i think like a big thing we do really need to learn is kind of basically admitting when something is no longer viable and being like hey guys look we know this sucks but like this isn't really going to work anymore and i think that's going to be tough because obviously if it's from the vc side where they recommend a project shuts down they have to admit they were wrong if it's from the kind of project side it's like they have to tell their holders they were wrong and obviously the holders would never ever want something like this because it's like what the hell my tokens are worthless but yeah Mm -hmm. i think this is kind of something that like has been like a question in my mind for a while which is like a lot of projects obviously have died but there's a lot of like zombies that are kind of holding some community people hostage 
who like could be you know working for like better happier projects well, i say working but like being in the community of and i think the more yeah. people we get in like kind of happier coin communities that are like fundamentally more sound it just makes crypto a happier place overall so what are your guys's outlook for 2023 depressing <laughs> mm. I don't know. Like it's it's hard to. I, I I tweeted this kind of jokingly like six months ago after Celsius collapsed, after three three arrows collapsed, after Terra collapsed. I said you know things can't really get much worse, but they can always get worse. And I think you know <laughs> to almost say that again, you know I I can't really imagine much worse things happening again after what happened with FTX. You know we still have Binance, we still have Tether, we still have like USDC. But ultimately, you know, last cycle, it didn't feel this way to me. It felt like, yeah, people were kind of giving up on crypto as a concept, but we didn't have this much wreckage and this much baggage. And I think it will take some time to recover from that. I think it's very likely that, you know, in terms of like, I don't want to speculate really about bottoms or prices, but it's likely that we're not going to see much worse. But what can really kill the markets and really kill enthusiasm is just it will kind of drag like this for some time liquidity will continue drying up you know all the projects that have tokens yeah though they, they will probably continue trading at a similar price but there will be no liquidity whatsoever i think the projects that launch in the last three months are probably already regretting it like you have for example you know aptos uh versus sui and sui still didn't launch the token or you know arbitrum for example and then i can bet you that they're still waiting like a big piece of that liquidity pie is the horror of the fact that like 2017, 2018, the market makers weren't like as exposed to the kind of downturn. Whereas now like FTX, there's a lot of market makers who lost a lot of funds on FTX because I mean, they're market makers. They need funds on a platform to like market make the platform. And so that is one big like difference from now to like before is a lot of these guys who are the kind of core liquidity providers are like i think the ones that are insolvent like there's probably still a few more to be uncovered it's like rough and sad in that sense but like it's going to take time for these guys to pack up shop understand exactly what happened see how much money they have left like a lot of loans were recalled with the lunar collapse but obviously maybe not enough or like they were still all recalled but it's just a case of like some people just managed to lie for long enough like alameda but yeah that's probably going to take a bit just in terms of like overall market liquidity like these guys need to kind of reassess the damages see how they can continue yeah yeah, I, I'll just follow up quick on that. A couple of things I'm excited about. Uh, one, and Loom was making fun of this a bit earlier, but I still think ZK rollups are um, are something to watch out for. I still oh no, I love that ZK rollups. <laughs> I know you were, you know, you were basically just kind of joking about them not being as big of a deal as, as imagined. I think that's probably true, but 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 on the other hand, you know, you have all these projects kind of getting to a point where it's really almost ready, and I I know that's kind of an inside joke. But I, I do think that you know Q1, Q2, hopefully we'll st start seeing production ready, actually scalable zk rollups. I think you know Polygon will definitely transfer their their side chain to a zk rollup. We'll, we'll have zk sync, scroll, and Starknet. Uh, and I think while you know they're 
probably won't be much demand to actually use those chains initially. It could provide really good infrastructure for the next uh, cycle. And that's that's one thing I'm really excited about. Second one, I think a lot of the crypto infrastructure now needs to be simplified. Like, I think we still didn't get to a point where, you know, someone like, I don't know, my friends or my parents that never really touched crypto before can use it really really simply like like the on ramps are still not perfect uh the the wallets are still not perfect uh, a lot of the core infrastructure i think still needs to be simplified to a point where you really don't have to know about using crypto if you don't want to uh and and i'm really bullish on this infrastructure being built out you know you have you have stripe now uh launching their crypto on ramp as well like i think i think that will really really improve uh for the next cycle and and then if you have massively increased scalability with the same kind of decentralization guarantees on top of better usability and and better infrastructure for beginners and users that don't necessarily want to like custody their private keys, I think there can be something really special happening in the next cycle. I think the only problem is like, I don't know how long it will take. I, I you know it, it's so kind of intertwined with macro, so intertwined with uh, retail. Uh, disposable income and all these things that it's really difficult to guess. But I, if I were to speculate, it will probably be pretty quiet for the next year and then probably start picking up again. I think we could use some some quiet time after this. Leave, yeah, seriously. Leave this saga behind us Please. in 2022. <laughs> well, I can't, and I can't leave it behind me. Today I've been getting email after email from anonymous sources. It's... Hi, really enjoyed your show. Listen to it on the Google Podcasts. I have a document proving that SBF was in charge of Alameda as of October to December 2021. Well, yeah, obviously. He stepped down in December of 2021. So you get a lot of false flags doing this. I mean, just the I heard a rumor, right? Everybody wants to be the guy that, like, leaks yeah. something to someone because it makes them feel powerful. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that like has been all over the place. And and also what I really don't like, and yeah, like I've been massively wrong about FTX. I think most people have been, but like all these people who are now like hindsight, you know, I knew it was all like commingled, like it was, the relationship was obvious. Yeah, sure. But no one really could have no one really even tried to predict something like this where where you know they, they actually took away customer funds and people lost money. It's so insane to me that you have these people that now claim that this was like something that could have been foreseen or that, you know, this was obvious since day one because of how Sam interacted with media or something like that. Um, you can find as many red flags as you could find about Sam with all the other exchange executives, in my opinion. Like it's, there, there's always something. And so I really don't like that. And I really also don't like what Loom mentioned. It's like all these guys, you know, effectively just anonymous Twitter accounts with no accountability, just just like leaking stuff that someone sends to them and then asking people to confirm. And, and well, yeah, you know, just like, like, I heard this. It's, it's just annoying. It just, yeah, it completely muddies the conversation, which is, you know, what people don't understand. I had a conversation with an investor in Miami and I like explained to him, the process of like just how a story gets put together and he had no idea. And I think a lot of people don't understand like the rigorous debates that go behind um, a story actually being published, kind of adding these layers of, of editing functions um, 
it, it's it's a process. It's not like someone says, "Oh, this thing happened," and I go and hit publish on it. Like I have to have we we have debates, like literal, sometimes days long debates about whether a source is reliable or not, and it's a bit of an alchemy. But but part of it is there's some real science to that process, and it's a it's a very complicated one. And you know, I I will say, like I think. Crypto Twitter has been useful and um, in sort of like providing a, a foundation for digging into some of these things. But and we use it like we'll see some of the stuff that some of these accounts flag. But when you go to the block or or, or, or one of our competitors, you're going to know that like whatever the information like we'll be late to it. Right. Relative to the, some of these Twitter accounts. But you're going to know it's been really like refined and and and. Um, it would have gone through a process as it were, but I, I know we're a bit over time, but I think this is like interesting. Um, and I think both of you find, you know, we've all been talking about this and have been in our own respective war rooms. Um, do you think crypto Twitter, like do you think some of these accounts are getting ahead of their skis or, or um, are they net positive? It's, it's interesting, right? Um, because it's, it's almost like a mob, but in some ways it's like kind of not that bad of a mob because they are, there are some interesting insights there. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a really good question. Like to your point, you always find about stuff first from Twitter and on, in almost all the cases, like sometimes it's private chat group. Sometimes it's like someone gives you a call and you find out or some, some source or something. But a lot of the time you just find from, find, find that information from Twitter. The problem is that, you know, there's so much wrong information. Like, like, like two weeks ago, you know, everyone was saying that Silvergate is going down, and because of that, Circle is going down, and because the USDC is going down, and then Tether is going down because of Deltek. And there's just like so many of these things. And ultimately, you know, you can be wrong eight times and be right two times, and you'll still be a hero because you predicted something. And I think that's the hard part that journalists have to kind of balance and, and researchers as well, is that you have to be reasonably sure about stuff um, before you actually put it out there. And you also have some obligation to like people that follow you, especially with the large following, to do these things. And sometimes you're wrong for sure. Uh, but, you know, I, everyone can be speculating right now that Nexo is like insolvent or, you know, any lender out there because the chances that, you know, they might be and you might be right. But ultimately, like a lot of it is just sec- a lot of it is just guessing. And I think, you know, your larger point is CT actually good. I would say yes, it is good. It, it holds people accountable a little bit more. It definitely is a good channel to get information out there as fast as possible. But for someone that maybe isn't as, um, you know, can can confirm the information themselves or isn't as connected, it's really difficult to be able to say, you know, Loomdar just tweeted complete bullshit uh, versus, you know, Loomdar just tweeted something that that I should act on and withdraw from, from you know, Nexo immediately or anything like that. It's really difficult to navigate this space if you're not an insider, if you don't have experience kind of, knowing which accounts are reliable, you know, which which people you can trust more than others. It's really, really difficult. But overall I would still say it's 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 not good. Yeah, I think I'd echo Larry's points in that like it's sometimes a dangerous space, but the I mean the truth of the matter is we can't get the good without the bads. And in this case the good is like very, very good. There's no better system for getting information like immediately. And it's also like open information for everyone that everyone can comment on everyone can like cast judgment on like um 
publicly, which I think is just like honestly, I'm a big fan of Twitter. I think in terms of like social medias, it's just incredible. Yeah, I hope Elon doesn't ruin it. Well, guys, thanks so much for taking the time. I want to thank you both for joining the scoop today. We've been joined once again by Loomdart and Larry Cermak. Appreciate you both taking the time to be on the show. Thanks, Frank. Uh, my pleasure, sir. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The Scoop will be back for you again. Thanks for listening.